But if Christianity for us was synonymous with this gospel and not with finding Bible verses to apply, then it, it could, it's incorruptible. So within Islam is the, the life sentence for every poor person. But within the gospel, there is a call to the messianic feast that's begun, and I get to pick up the tab, and you get to pick up the tab. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. <laughs> okay. I like that. We're in our series, FTW. I'm sorry, Alex. <laughs> Faith Thanks. That Works. Thank you. We're in our fourth episode, Religious Darwinism. Don't We're going to review the, here, let's listen Alex. to this ambitious goal. We're going to review the history of world religions and discuss potential reasons for the dominance of the Abrahamic faiths. Don't hold oh, me to that's that. all. Don't hold me to that. I, I, that's that's insider information. You just shared insider information. Man. That's just something I threw together. It's, How many of the world religions right are we going to cover today? Yeah, I don't know all of them. Yeah. anybody an exhaustive list? Right? Yeah, I don't even know. I just figured out what the symbol for Hinduism is. Have you seen that? You know, mm -hmm. It's like some squiggly Sanskrit letters. Well, it's mm. like the Buddhist one, yeah. I thought the Buddhist one was a wheel. Is it not like this? Well, there's that it one It looks too. like the, you know, captain, the ship wheel. That's on some flags somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's the Buddhist one. Maybe mm. there's another there's Buddhist the one. There's the Om, the Om symbol, yeah. Ah, uh, O-M? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, because that's... That's how. So when we're talking about world religions, we're talking about Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, animism, animism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that. The, so the, this is based in a critique of <coughs> the Christian worldview, and and it's something that I have been mulling over. Um, but every culture, at least most cultures, have some sort of religion that. For whatever reason, we don't know the origin of all the religions that are out there, right? Uh, but if, let's say, there, I saw a meme, and I don't know if it's correct, but it's like there's over 5,000 gods that are worshipped by the human race. But yeah, your god's the right one, you know. Um, and so the thinking, the logic behind that, at least seems to me to be that um, if all these societies have somehow generated their own religious beliefs and and we look at them and we go, well, that's man-made. That's rooted in superstition. That's rooted in, you know, a regressive worldview. It's, it's based in fear and ignorance. And, um, but ours is not. So, you know, every other place where this occurs, it's bad. Or at least it's not helpful or not valid. But in this one instance, it is. It's you know. I mean, I I can't think of a whole lot of other things where we would we would use that logic, you know, where where we're like, you know, every let's just say every great white shark will eat you, except for this one that mm -hmm. I keep in my swimming pool. Mm -hmm. He's nice, mm -hmm. you know. And how do I convince people of that? How do I try to you know get everybody to get in the pool? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so I just it's like, grab it's like, that one, man. I don't know. Like, yeah, wow. Good. I'm not getting in that pool, else? Nathan. Right? Come on, get in the pool. He's fine. He's good. He's fine. Yeah, he's great. This this one's good. Yeah, this is the great white shark. Yeah. See, you had the great white sharks. Yeah. But this I have the great. This white is the great white shark of all sharks. Right. Great he's white the shark. great white shark, yes. not the great white shark. 
That's what you were. That was your problem. Oh, right? okay. Yeah, okay. you were. You picked the wrong emphasis. <laughs> so, so, so you're saying this argument? It grants that Christianity alike is all is also antiquated and in many ways regressive. Um, so, why would we prefer it over the others? And we're gonna make the case that um, though it be antiquated and regressive in certain ways, it is still worth keeping. Sure. Yeah. I, I, and we would say, well, the longing of humankind for a God argues for the existence of a God, just like hunger argues for the existence of food, thirst argues for the existence of water or whatever, you know, maybe your poison. Um, so we would say, well, this phenomenon, this kind of almost universal phenomenon to, to worship and to have a God of some sort would say that, that there must be a God, but then people would counter okay, well, all these gods are manufactured, so not, it must not be the case. It must be rooted in something else. And if this god is, if there is such a thing as a god, why does he allow so many wrong ideas about what a god is? Um, so these are the kinds of arguments I think that people would have about all of that. Um, and so the topic of the series is a faith that works. It's not really apologetics, but I, so I guess that the, the thesis is we're here talking about the God of the Bible because Christianity works in a way that, say, Roman paganism, mystery cults, um, other, you know, Zoroastrianism and stuff don't. Now, people could say, well, Islam is also out there, you know, and, and everything. And we can talk about that um would you call islam one of the abrahamic faiths well that's the thing we talk about <laughs> the god of the bible it's like well yeah. which bible right you know because yeah the judaism islam and christianity yeah. we all share different parts of you know quote unquote the bible so yeah that is its own subject in a way mm -hmm. yeah i found out the other day that muslims don't really um reverence the bible they kind of say they do but they only they reverence the, the common narratives that are also found in the Quran. Mm -hmm. So they can go through and, because I've asked them, you know, you'll, you'll see uh, Muslim apologetics are never why Islam is true because there's really no historical substance to Islam. Islam is just a, a kind of a diatribe. It's just claims about Allah and about what you should do in the Quran and in the Hadiths. Mm -hmm. But there's not a historical like God interacted with humankind, and as a result, here we are, mm -hmm. which is what I would say would be the basis of the biblical faiths. You know, say so Judaism begins with kind of a narrative. You know, Judaism arguably begins in Genesis 12, right? Mm -hmm. so, God called Abraham. Right. So there's this interaction that is there. The book is talking about God revealing himself to somebody it's not god revealing himself to somebody right. or it's god revealing himself by talking about how he revealed himself let's say that that's what the bible is the bible is a record of god's revealing acts it, right yeah and, and certainly not exclusively that but that's what it is and mm -hmm. and whereas let's say um the quran would be god just supposedly speaking directly through the quran the is god's revelation right so that would be that would be the difference, right? Um, which 
goes to say that um, there's really not anything to disprove about the, you know, Muslim faith or whatever, you know, so we can, it's not, you know, uh, somebody says, well, Allah said this, and we can be like, okay. <laughs> you know? so. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, but in the biblical narrative that there's historic claims and stuff like that, so um, at, at any rate, there's there's no apologetic, there's no real Muslim apologetics. You know, you don't, you don't really encounter somebody saying, well, uh, you know, Muhammad must have been the messenger of God because of X, Y, and Z. You know, because Muhammad, there's no claims that Muhammad really did any sort of dramatic miracles or signs or anything. Uh, he was poisoned and lived longer than everybody else in the room who was poisoned. So you could say, well, there you go. But he was deathly ill, you know, I mean, for the last three years of his life. It wasn't like he didn't, he wasn't affected by it. You know, he wasn't mm -hmm. like, hey, Gil, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. But there's really no claim that, you know, Muhammad split a rock or, you know, did some amazing thing like there is of Moses or Jesus. So there's no there's no Muslim apologetics where we try to defend something historically or they try to defend something historically. Now, they may say, well, God must exist because of certain, you know, philosophical reasons. Um, but mostly when you encounter Muslim apologetics, they are critiques of the Bible. So Muslim... Muslim apologists and liberal New Testament scholars have a lot mm -hmm. to lot in common. They, you know, they enjoy each other's company and they like to knock around yeah. ideas. They're trying to undermine confidence in the Bible. Sure, sure. And I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that they don't believe these things themselves, but the Muslim argument is Islam assumes faith in the other person and it simply is trying to undermine that faith so that it can replace it with something else. It's a it's parasitic. And it always has been, you know. So it, it, it came up in a worldview that requires belief in the God of Abraham to exist, you know, or um, at least somebody willing, you know, who doesn't want to get killed for not believing <laughs> in a monotheistic God because, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily have to hunt down and kill all of the people of the book, according to the Quran, but you do have to force the pagans to convert. So, yeah, there's that. Anyway, um, where was I going with that? Yeah, we don't. So this isn't about apologetics. This is just about why is it that Christianity still exists or Christianity seems to have taken over the pagan world. Mm -hmm. and, and I think still poses a threat. So let's just say you go to India, and you and you say, let's just have an open conversation about who God is, and you invite people of all faiths. That was not going to be tolerated very long in India, because Hinduism is critical to their national identity. You know, at least currently, Modi is trying to create kind of a Hindu state. Um, so even though Hinduism worships many gods. It's still within the confines of Hinduism, right? right? It's not like we're because we're Hindus, we're therefore open to all religions. Since we worship many gods, we're therefore open to all religions. It's right. not as that's not the case, right? I mean, Hinduism is kind of violently opposed to proselytization. You know, 
Um, and so, you well, know. And then there's, I mean, the underlying that, and find this as you <laughs> travel the world, that um, the particulars of the religion is very uh, much baked into the culture. So, you know, being living in Thailand, to be a Thai person is also to be a Buddhist, a Thai Buddhist. And those things are synonymous with each mm-hmm. other. So something like Hinduism in you know Modi's case is like, this isn't just like a selective religion. Like we just woke up and decided I'll be Hindus one day. This is, this is our this, culture. This is our culture. And national identity. And we're protecting our national and cultural identity and roots by saying that we are uniquely Hindus and not... Christian, Muslim, mm-hmm. especially Muslim, but uh, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jews or any of these other religions. And even though Hinduism is pantheistic, you know, and they do accept other gods, they're saying we're still Hindus and we're not going to change that. That's important to our cultural identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of really most religions. Sure. And and I think most um, adherents to religions around the world, would you would say, well, why are you Hindu? Because I'm I was born that way. I'm Indian. They're not going to say because Hinduism is true, and here's why. And many atheists or agnostics would say, "Well, you're just a Christian because you're raised to be a Christian," you know, in America mm-hmm. or you know some sure. other similar place. And I, I think that's valid, and we need to hear that, mm-hmm. um, and we need to try to find ways to kind of get outside of our own cultural bias and try to look back at the faith and say, if somebody told me this, would I believe it? I, I may not in a in a modern worldview, but you know my unbelief should then be critiqued <laughs> you know because in our culture we're not just a christian culture we really are an enlightenment modernist culture mm-hmm. that's the schools we go to that's the media outlets that we view we have been um inundated with a worldview that is so prevalent and it and because it lives outside of any sort of an official religion it seems purely objective. It seems based on actual proof, rational thought, um, so that even those people who go to church and Christians and stuff are very much affected and influenced by a modernist worldview. So if, if someone were to say, well, if you hadn't been raised a Christian, would you believe any of this? Even if the answer is no, it doesn't mean that I'm a cultural Christian. It may mean that I'm a cultural modernist mm-hmm. who happens to also go to church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's that unwillingness to critique this, you know, what, what is presented to us as kind of a default way to think. Uh, you know, this kind of causalism, this, this A plus B equals C mentality that, you know, hey, there's some truth to it, obviously. But it doesn't explain all the phenomena that we encounter as humans. It doesn't explain our existence. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, to be frank, uh, you... To, to form a truly modernist culture, you're going to have to have a lot of pharmaceuticals available. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, what we're seeing. Right. Yeah. I mean, at some point, everybody's going to have to be on cocaine and antidepressants, mm-hmm. alternatively. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to have to have lots of meds to face a world without God, to face mm-hmm. the harsh, uh, lonely, cold universe, you know. Um, or you're going to have to find something that you religiously believe in, even though you may not call it a religion. Um, so um, does it work? I, so that's, that's my question. Is, um, and, and Rodney Stark, in his book, uh, The Triumph of Christianity, he makes that case. He, you know, he doesn't, 
he's obviously a, a Christian, but he comes at it from a purely secular historical worldview. He's saying, why did Christianity take over the Roman Empire? You know, and we could say, well, it was Constantine and he made it legal and then they, you know, forced everybody to agree with this one worldview, kind of a Da Vinci Code narrative where there were all these variants and then they forced everybody to agree. But uh, really that Christianity was very much a, a salient, coherent uh, worldview mindset movement within the Roman Empire, even as they were being hunted and killed and used the streetlights and all of that, that it was that 300 years worth of resilience that eventually toppled the empire um and it's not just that it's like uh, stark talks about how um i think in the plague of justinian during you know you had a you had a very urban life that had emerged in the roman empire but urbanization is a very miserable thing we really weren't made for it to live in close quarters and in poor conditions and disease and all of that is is a part of urbanization um so there was nothing to mitigate the misery of urban life uh, 50 percent of the empire was slaves women were very subjugated um i mean really if it weren't for christianity if people who want to go back to like say they, there are people who say if christianity had never come on the scene we would just have moved from greater and greater and greater degrees of enlightenment we could have started the enlightenment earlier the enlightenment was largely a, a neoclassic movement, which is why the U.S. has so many classical, so much classic architecture and art, artistry, because it was an enlightenment phenomenon, right? So it's a neoclassicist movement, but what people don't understand is that, um, that they were operating on philosophy that we would all be horrified by. <laughs> and it wasn't religion, it was philosophy, it was thinking, it was reason. So Aristotle taught that um, because slaves are slaves, they are inferior to free people. <laughs> he had a, his way of, of uh, his ethics included this notion that everything that is has a purpose. And um, so if there is slavery, slavery must have a purpose. And if the slaves serve a purpose, then the highest good for a slave is to fill, fulfill their purpose. Well, you can't liberate slaves on that mentality. Mm -hmm. or, and, and you don't have to even treat them well on that mentality. So how do you get out of that thinking? If, if that becomes implicitly true in your world, how do you ever? I mean, I mean go back to Hinduism and the Dalits, you know, the untouchables. As long as Hinduism is in place, you will always have lower castes that can't rise out of it. You know, hey, that's fine. I mean, it's not just your religion. It, it, there are implications. So when Christianity comes and people can critique Paul for not starting some liberation movement, but within the gospel, the seeds of equality that we consider implicitly true today, those are not implicitly true. But, you know, when... When Peter said, hey, live with your wife, love your wife, live with her according to knowledge, what knowledge? That she is a fellow heir with you. Mm -hmm. What? <laughs> that's a crazy, that's crazy talk. It's crazy talk, Peter. You know, we don't get that, that, that while Paul would tell a woman to, to be submissive to her husband and all that, that, that at the same time, on, a, on a, an existential level, the gospel is saying women and men are the same. Mm -hmm. 
And that's something that nobody did until then. And I don't think it would have happened because there's no resource, there's no basis for that equality so long as your philosophical underpinning is something like Aristotle. So in that um, Christian thought and ethic infiltrated the Roman Empire, it was undermining a lot of these assumptions that were already part of the Roman worldview. Yeah. So that it came in and subjugated, <laughs> you know, views on women, views on slaves, um, because the underlying Christian ethic was that we are all co-equals in the sight of God because of Christ. Right. right. It would undermine nationalism. Um, you know, why do you line up in phalanx and kill a bunch of barbarians? Well, it's because Rome, you know, we're giving this region the best thing it can have, and that is the Roman Empire, Roman dominance, you know. The gods are with us, and we're going to bring everything. Pax Romana. Pax Romana, yeah. Pax Romana always mm -hmm. came with a sword. Right. <laughs> That's right. Roman peace. Right. But if, if you go and, and, and you are encouraging people to confess that Jesus is Lord, um, now you're, you've undermined this cohesion, this nationalism. Now you begin to see the barbarian across the line as a human, someone for whom Christ died. You see how that can begin to be costly to an earthly empire if people actually begin to accept the gospel. Um, and does that, this account for the triumph of Christianity? Yeah. Well, what he would say would be that um, Christianity came in and began to mitigate the urban suffering. Mm -hmm. So people became Christians. That They found a community because there was, um, and, and very much like our society do today, with the Pax Romana and the Roman roads and everything, the people were, um, they were dislocated from their point of origin, right? They, they, that you had these kind of cosmopolitan cities and so nobody really belonged. Everybody was there, but nobody belonged. But now people began to have a community. They began to have a sense of belonging because the uh, religions in general don't form communities. Most pagan religions are, you go and you perform a certain set of rituals for the deity, you make them happy, you receive a blessing for yourself personally, and maybe for your nation, you know. Um, so a lot of that was a feature of the Roman faiths. Um, but as Christianity goes in, it is both rooted in this ancient faith that people were already curious about. You know, here's this invisible God, and, and there was... There's a reason that when Paul gets to Athens in Acts 17 that there's an uh, altar to an unknown God. I think people were, were wondering, you know, how can the gods, even the, even the philosophers, uh, Heraclitus, um, all the way back, you know, say 5th century uh, B.C., 6th century B.C., and then up to Socrates, uh, they're all asking, how can the gods be gods if they are philanderers? You know, if they are subject to these whims and this um, this kind of capriciousness, mm -hmm. must they not embody the virtues we aspire to? Or how could we call them gods? So th philosophically, they were wondering centuries before Christ came, you know, how can our gods be the, the way we depict them mm -hmm. and, and yet claim to be superior? You know, if they behave in ways that are like the most common person, like what we would do if we had all the power, you know, um, how could, how could they inspire us forward? And so there were, there, there were, there was a lot of skepticism over, um, how uh, Homer presented the gods and others. Um, and yet that was all they really had at the time. 
So they were wondering, is there something else, something more? All I have to say is that there's not this, I, I think what's presented by the skeptics is that societies manufacture gods because of their fears. And all of those gods are fake because they're manufactured, which must include the Christian God. And we just need to be done with all of it so that we can move ahead as a species. That's the argument. But that argument falls apart in that in every society, or in many societies, I would say, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but there is this sense that there's, there's a longing for that which is transcendent, morally, metaphysically, <laughs> you know. Um, now, there may be other gods, and there may be animism, and all these various cults in it, but all of these seem to um, be manufactured maybe on top of that. But when Christianity comes into a region, the reason Christianity is so carefully um, excluded and, and from other cultures is because in a fair marketplace, if you just say, hey, let's just put, them, put all the cards on the table, let's compare it all and give people the choice. Mm -hmm. Historically, Christianity tends to win. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in communist China, right? Mm -hmm. Atheism is the law. Christianity continues to thrive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which says that if you really want to take a Darwinist approach to, um, right. to truth, right, what, the thing that wins should survive, mm -hmm. right? The thing, the thing that's fittest, mm -hmm. what's fittest historically in human society? So it doesn't really matter that the Sumerians had their own ideas about God. It doesn't matter that the Chinese had their own ideas about God. All of this is are people who are reaching out for the divine and, and to some degree they're not entirely wrong you know there's truth in all of these various uh aspirations toward god philosophical ideas about god so the argument is that if <clears throat> we look at things purely from a darwinist perspective and this would be a counter to you know the the scientific approach i guess you know that christianity has thrived simply because it is is superior and it works right it's a faith that works it's a faith that works and that's right. why it supplanted the pagan face the roman yeah. empire and others barbarian yeah. face other other places communist china and and things on and on yeah i mean communist romania communist russia <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean if you if you really want to say well hey a modernist atheist worldview is superior and will win in the marketplace then you don't need to make Christianity illegal in these countries, and yet it has yeah, been do. made that way. Because it's a threat. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I would ask, if, if this worldview somehow resonates with the hearts and minds of humankind in a way that they're ready to lay down what they were trained in culturally, if we make that argument that, hey, you only believe because this is your culture, then let's make that argument, but take it into other countries and other contexts as well. Um, and, and let's let there be a fair exchange of ideas in every setting um, and just see what happens. It seems that Christianity will, it, it's probably never meant to be the, the major influencer. You know, once we get past a certain threshold, then it becomes the new oppressor, to be honest. You know, the church does um, because there's something powerful and valuable in it and people co-opt it for their own sake. Um, but if... If everybody is allowed to pick and everybody's allowed to, to fully articulate their faith and what they, their belief system, 
it seems historically that Christianity will endure. It will take uh, a major portion of the population, and even those who aren't, don't adopt it will be affected by it. So, um, how does that how does that work into the current state, the current moment that we all live in? And I, I'm thinking the particulars of. Uh, the culture, the times we live in here in America, where we, we are seeing a great, you know, call it deconstruction or whatever, we, we're seeing a lot of um, people uh, that are both culturally and historically Christian um, really st starting to break away from those institutions and those, uh, I the ideals and values that come with those institutions and um, say that they no longer identify with that. Yeah, um, and I think this happens over time because Christianity becomes corrupt like everything else. Um, and it's because, in my view at least, that we, don't, we haven't articulated it well. If you see Christianity as um, a way to get to heaven uh, or church attendance or whatever, then you don't have the resources to prevent that corruption. And so it comes in and those same dynamics that feature in every oppressive you know society just begin to adopt christian garb and so i think that's a lot of the deconstruction a lot of the people that i've talked to who are leaving christianity or abandoning a christian identity are doing so largely because of uh, the conservative politics that have kind of leached onto it and have adopted it you know and then that's that's purely a power play Sorry, let's just call it what it is. You know, it's an attempt to get a major voter block to do certain things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, on the part of the on the part of the politicians, that's what it is. Right. And then the the Christians who allow them to do that are those who haven't understood that that's what's going on. Well, or and and and, uh, and 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 get caught up in this vision, this nationalistic vision. Let's say, yeah, rather than in a Christian vision. Right, they see their goal as to you know redeem America or bring America back to God or you know whatever it is that, and that's just not in the gospel. It's, it's well-meaning, well-intended. It feels like this is my faithfulness as a Christian. Apparently, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's fighting right. for saving our society from the pagans. Well, we through were talking about means. this this uh, la last time about how we're wired for story, right, and that. Um, really in a way the the politics and the current culture on both sides you know you say liberal and conservative are offering a counter narrative that seems more relevant to people that call themselves christians but the the narrative that they're supplying is um is resonating more for them than the, the narrative that they have historically understood exactly. as christian Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and in a market-driven society like ours, if you want an audience, you're going to have to play on people's fears, to be frank. You know, uh, it was it's kind of eye-opening to me to realize that Billy Graham's first crusade was a week after the Russians successfully tested their first nuclear device. So the rhetoric becomes, come to the Lord or be swept up in the communist threat. Not, you know, that there's this existential threat, that there's this metaphysical threat but there is a very geopolitical threat and that is what you need to be afraid of um, it, it's interesting to me that there there's no mention of hell in any of the sermons in the book of acts 
that this is the the gospel is is really not turn or burn it is an invitation to what god has done and it's and um and that's how it's generally presented now there's cert- there is the truth that there will be a judgment but even that is about justice um you know um and a new society so i i think those who are called and and that may sound predestined you know like predestination maybe it is but they will hear it and say, this is wonderful, thank you. You know, they will come. And then those who see their life change will say, what happened to you? Some of those will come. <laughs> Again, this is, these are all positive motives. These are all being drawn in to something positive that's happening. But if we're able to articulate the gospel like Paul did, um, then it will be this very subversive message that will not have room for the corrupting influences it will it will begin to cancel that that's it's why john can say in first john 2 and this is the most one of the most subversive things i can think of so in first john 2 john says you don't need anyone to teach you because that which you heard from the beginning teaches you you know and so he's saying listen to that which you heard from the beginning and that's true there's no lie of that so the message, this simple message that brings people in continues to teach, and it never teaches error, according to John. And so he's saying, you don't need people to teach you, which precludes this corruption. Corruption only comes when people are vying for power. And people only vie for power when we can control the resources that we're dispensing. You know, the, mm-hmm. the doctrine, and again, I'm being critical, but I'm just being honest here, the doctrine of, of transubstantiation that people go and they actually eat the body of Christ, they drink his blood, mm-hmm. and that renews their, uh, the salvific effects of the gospel for them for another week. It's incredibly convenient for the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's not true, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and if, if there is no, you know, if everyone's a priest and everyone knows the truth, then there can never be the masses to be controlled. It's over. <laughs> but because we've, we've supplanted that, we've replaced it, 1 John 2, we'll spend a lot more time explaining away what 1 John 2 seems to be saying than we will barrel, you know, bearing down into mm-hmm. the implications of what it really is saying. Right, right. What does this really mean, and what would this mean for our church life and church hierarchy and structures? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody is, everybody is subject to the gospel, accountable before it. So if, if you get up and say something and my soul goes, I, can't, I should come talk to you, right? I, I, that we, we should, you know, how does health and wealth come out of the gospel? You know, the prosperity gospel. Where, how does that, does that come out of this message of somebody who came and though he was rich, mm-hmm. he became poor? And, you know, though he, he was innocent, he was convicted, you know? Mm-hmm. It, does, does that, does health and wealth come out of that? And they would say, well, he, he, because he was poor, therefore we don't have to be. Sure, I guess that, that must totally miss the whole <laughs> a servant's not greater than his Lord and a uh-huh. student's not greater than his teacher, not yeah. above his teacher. I mean, mm-hmm. it's asinine. It's mm-hmm. insane. But when you begin to, to say the Christian faith is about finding Bible passages to apply, well, then I can just select all the ones about being wealthy and stuff from, say, the Old Testament, and, and I can— I can create a doctrine and you'll believe it because you like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and then 
hey, mega church, you know, we our big mega televangelist ministries because we can we can tell people what they want to hear, and it's all great. But if Christianity for us was synonymous with this gospel and not with finding Bible verses to apply, then it, it could, it's incorruptible because it's small enough, it's pure enough, it's simple enough that when somebody tries to turn the message of Jesus into, you know, celebrity in an Armani suit, the dissonance is obvious to everybody who's not an adherent to the health and wealth gospel. You don't even have to be a Christian. You could just be an atheist sitting there and watching this. So your theory is that if we could return to that gospel, preach that gospel, uh, then to, today, and today mm-hmm. in the current society that we're in, then it would, um, it would be compelling and people would be drawn, at least some people would be drawn away from the nationalism or else the atheism well, it, a, in, in that in, in the pro, in the proclamation of what the gospel truly is, that there there is a an inherent challenge to what is essentially the false these false gospels, you know, whatever you want to call those things that have mm-hmm. just are really just constructs of people's you know picking and choosing different Bible verses so that they can sell a faith or control a market place, and so there's that. Um, challenge them proclaiming the true gospel not not only are some going to be like yes this is this is what I've been looking for but it, it is going to challenge those that are already in the faith to examine examine uh, their own faith and to you know begin to purify those those things that have become corrupted so to speak yeah I mean the kingdom of God Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed right that grows in the be the biggest herbs of the garden and the birds come and rest, you know, and its branches. Um, and Neil Cole made a, an interesting ob- observation. He was saying it grows big because it's small. Um, not, there's not this, you know, I, I could have picked a bigger plant. I could say the gospel is an acorn that though it is small, it becomes a mighty oak. But the emphasis in Jesus analogy isn't the size of the plant exclusively but of the seed so I, I would say and this is the thing that we want to start with a big seed so you've got to find a message that will bring in the masses once the masses are there then you could maybe try to sell them on Jesus well that's starting with a big seed um, what the gospel seems to be is a very very small message and it has a very very narrow appeal initially and I, and, and that's the thing that requires faith is that when we go and, and, you know, I can't imagine how disappointed Paul was to go to these synagogues and to preach the gospel. And mm-hmm. first time he, they hear it, they're like, this is great. Let's hear this next week. And then, you know, all the Gentiles turn out and they're like, wait, we don't like this anymore. And, you know, to, to be cast out of the synagogue and hated by the Jews and all this, this audience that was ready made. Yeah. He said, I have unceasing grief and anguish yeah. in my heart over my kinsmen. Sure. So to, to have to walk out of that room or be driven out of that room, say, with five or six, you know, one Jew and five Gentile seekers and to have to start another group over here mm-hmm. um, must have felt, you know, must have been deflating. But but as these people, as as this undiluted message that because it's undiluted, it's offensive. You know, this undiluted message changes these lives. I mean, Paul saw these lives change. 
And, and I think it was shocking for him as a Jew. He was always taught that there were Jews and there were sinners. The world was divided into two easy, neat you know, categories, Jews and sinners. But then these sinners start to show hospitality. They start to love. They start to just pour out their goods for the poor. Like, how are these sinners better people than the, than the Jews? You know, I, I think he witnessed the power of his own message so many times. Now, as those people, as that community... You know, as Luke says, that the grace of God in Acts 4, the grace of God was among them so prevalently that there were no needy people. They they solved poverty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, does that work? Yes. And it, it only works because there's this inner drive that people are joyfully giving what they have to others. You know, they're not like, well, it sucks for you that you're poor. Look, go back to Islam. Okay. And I read the Quran, or at least I read as much as I could tolerate of it, you know, I'm most of the way through it. It's 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 a mind-numbing book from my perspective. But you know, um, according to Allah and the Quran, it's like if somebody's poor, it's because Allah made them poor. So why would you work against Allah? So within Islam is the the life sentence for every poor person. But within the gospel, there is a call to the messianic feast that's begun. And I get to pick up the tab, and you get to pick up the tab. <laughs> you know, Jesus is like, you know, he's sitting at, at dinner with some Pharisees, and one of the Pharisees turns to him and says, how blessed is the one who gets to eat at the table of the Messiah? And Jesus is like, this is the table of the Messiah, sucker. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and Jesus is like, I mean, you've got to invite people in. You've got to invite in the poor and the disenfranchised and the marginalized. You know, you want, to, you want the feast to start? Then let's start it. Let's kick this thing off. And that's what takes over the world. Because rich or poor, I think all of us want a world where there's justice and where people aren't suffering, you know? Where suffering is at least mitigated. And nobody has the resources for that. Even atheists, they would like for the world to be that way, but they don't have a means of redemption. And so the ignorant, you know, the, the Mississippi redneck, the trailer trash, they are the deplorables. We don't have time to educate them in the new world order. See, there's no way for those people to come together. But the gospel says Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female are all one, are all on the same footing. That's why it works. And there's nothing else like that. Nothing else that actually makes that happen. Boom. Literal. Gentle Mike. <laughs> Gentle Mike said. <laughs> I, I say, hey, be amen. careful. These aren't cheap. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for being with us today. Thank you, Nathan. And let's uh, let's go and work to fulfill that vision amen. in the world. Amen. Mm-hmm.